Every journey begins with a single step. For many, the first step is the greatest challenge. Yet for all, the obstacles, the doubt, and conviction teach us about ourselves. It's these moments in life, a test of our abilities, our mind, when we don't know, but we still proceed. Driven by the unspoken, but ignited by the obsession that yields some of life's greatest lessons and rewards. Join me as we explore incredible stories of leaders forging industries, enterprises, and ultimately, themselves. I'm your host, Adam Geary, and welcome to Capital Class. Let's begin. Classmates. We often explore the journey of an enterprise, the grit, the challenge, the success of building a business. However, on today's episode, we're featuring a cornerstone player in the American education system, an organization sometimes known for affiliation with a Shark Week, but always revered as a high-quality digital content platform. What's helped make this organization distinctly different is their commitment to teachers, the very role our guest began his journey as CEO on. On today's episode of Capital Class, we are joined by Scott Kinney, CEO of Discovery Education. Scott, welcome to Capital Class. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's great to, great to have the conversation today. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's not often that I meet a lot of CEOs that at one point put on their lanyard and walk to the front of a classroom as they're like the beginning of their career. And that strikes me because that's how I started my career. So what, what grade did you teach? So I, I was actually, uh, uh, my first job was as a technology coordinator in uh, a small wow. school district in Western Pennsylvania. So it was funny, like I, I shouldn't say my first job. My, my first job in college was actually working on a school system. So I was pulling uh, wires for like satellite teleconferencing, <laughs> you know, pre-internet. And then, uh, uh, and then what I would do at Sharpsville when I was there is I'd moonlight at, at, at the Penn State branch campus and then at Kent State. So I'd teach both uh, higher ed and undergraduate uh, while I was there. So uh, I've been in public education for, I started in public education in the early 90s uh, and uh, have been uh, doing it ever since here at Discovery for the last 19 years. I looked at my offer letter the other day and, and as of March, I'll be at, at Discovery Education for 19 years. Now, we're, we're going to talk a lot about Discovery, but you started from what I understand, with the mission of helping to develop a teacher network. Yeah, Discovery, for sure. I was, uh, I was passionate about professional uh, development and the role educational technology could have. I, I, I just, I've always had this feeling that the, the way we could scale what we know about good practice in education was through the strategic use of technology. Um, and so early on in my career, I fell in love with it. I was actually, my, uh, I was math ed uh, to begin my career. And then uh, kind of got hooked on, uh, like, like I said, when I was in college, I, I, was doing, um, uh, I was doing some work at the local school system uh, part-time and uh, working on Apple IIEs and satellite teleconferencing and, and kind of early technologies in, in education and just fell in love with it. Like fell in love with what I could do for kids, fell in love with the, the, the access it gave teachers and, and how to engage students and how to deploy what they know about good instructional practice. Uh, and so I've been doing it ever since, almost 30 years now. Your business has humble beginnings. If, if I've done my research, it started off with videos. And now it is 
a repository of millions and millions of like high quality digital content that teachers are using every single day across the globe. Can you do us like a, give us the, the reader's digest for those who even know what that is uh, on discovery's journey. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. My, my first job, as I mentioned, was I was a technology coordinator in a small school district, K to 12. It was like 1200 kids. And I was the first technology coordinator the district had ever had. And I promise I'm getting to your question maybe a little bit longer than you'd hope. Um, but, but, I, but I often tell the story internally that uh, my first day was I was working for the assistant superintendent. He gave me uh, a tour of the district, took me out to lunch. And then after lunch, showed me my office and said, now do whatever it is you do here. Uh, and, and there was a big <laughs> stack of papers on my desk. And so clearly what had been happening was for about, you know, six months while they were searching for this role, anything to do with technology just went on the stack of papers and I'm, I'm rifling through it. And in that stack of papers was a 56 K grant to the internet. Uh, and so in the early nineties had the great fortune of bringing the internet kind of into schools. It was, you know, working with teachers on how to use email for the first time and kind of early on, how do you access a website and some online databases? And so what was pretty cool about that, like if you fast forward to where we are today, we deliver about a million learning objects every day uh, through the internet. So it's kind of cool to see the arc of, of my work in education from kind of bringing that pipe into schools and starting to think about, <laughs> I'll tell you another funny story. As part of that work in Sharpsville, a good friend of mine was a high school principal and we literally would have conversations about, hey, you think this internet thing will ever really have an impact on education? Uh, so it's super cool to be at Discovery Education where, you know, we're delivering, you know, so much learning uh, over over the wire. But to your question, we started off as a video on demand service. And so when I was uh, my, my kind of second job after Sharp, so I went to a, a, an IU in Pennsylvania, so a regional service center, um, you know, for folks listening, lots of states have, you know, regional centers in Texas, intermediate units in Pennsylvania, BOCES in New York. Uh, where we kind of serve between the state and, and the districts and, and provide consortium services. And one of the services that we offered at IU21 was, uh, was a media lending library. And so I had 6,000 videotapes and DVDs and two van drivers. And we had little tubbies. And if a teacher wanted a video, they would, they would fill out a form and they would send it in inter-office mail. And they, we'd send the video in a, in a van two days later. And as we got more sophisticated, we, we'd do an online form or an email submission and so what United Streaming did early on was they took those videos, they digitized them, they aligned them to state standards and delivered them over the Internet. I mean, think, think early on, probably a decade before Netflix became popular in the commercial space, uh, Discovery Education was doing this with educational videos. So a really cool beginning to the kind of the story of Discovery Education. In the early days of the Internet, in the Web 1.0, right now it's all titled about these errors. What was the... What was considered cutting edge? Yeah, it was the ability to do it at all. <laughs> you know, it's funny when I when I first started working, uh, my like like I said, in college, my first job was was at a place called Central Columbia in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania. And I remember uh, when the internet first came to be, I would I would want to download, and Disney would put their trailers on it, and it was the Lion King. I remember very specifically, they put the trailer of the Lion King online. And if you click the button and started the download and if overnight and if no one called you because if you had call waiting and it beeped, it would knock you off the Internet because it was just a modem connected oh, to, the, yeah. to the phone line. Oh, yeah. And don't so you, pick up the phone. No one <laughs> yeah, don't touch that phone. 
<laughs> and if everything worked perfectly, the next morning you'd have like a 60 second video to the Lion King, which was stunning back then. Right. And so I think about that, like that evolution of um, to your question about like what what kind of what what did it look like back then? What was special about it back then was even early on United Streaming and you know, the company United Learning had great technology around like you could download it if your bandwidth wasn't good. You could stream it at different bit rates. You know, now all that's done automatically, right? Like now you don't have to worry about that. It kind of seamlessly mm -hmm. happens behind the scenes. But at the time you could say, I want a lower quality video because my internet's not so good. Or I want to download it because as a teacher, I know that like I'm not going to rely on the internet during the school day, uh, but I really want that asset. And so uh, those were some of the cool things that they did early on. And the other one was just aligning it to standards. I mean, that was, it seems natural today. But 20 years ago, that was a little bit novel and people were pretty, pretty excited about being able to go by standard and search for different resources they could use with their kids. And when you think about where the internet is now and more so the kind of rapid conversation you hear about VR and meta and as a business leader, I mean, are you thinking about those or are, is it, are they too nascent? I mean, what's, what's your forecast on where we're heading? No, I, I think we kind of, you know, at discovery education, I think we always have to think about like, how do we, how do we utilize emerging technologies in a way that can support good teaching and learning? Um, and so, you know, we, when, when we created the, the, our video on demand service and United streaming back almost 25 years ago now, like that was really cutting edge and, and it was, it, it was disruptive to, to the, to the landscape. Um, and you know, the technological infrastructure wasn't quite ready for it and not all teachers were quite ready for it, but certainly we brought folks along, um, you know, almost, 15 years ago now, we, we delivered the first digital textbook that went in through an adoption in the state of Florida. Um, so we're constantly thinking about, like, how do we think about new technology? So we actually have a sandbox AR VR app that's that's available in the app store for free for educators um, where we're, we're not exactly sure what the role of, of AR and VR in, in education is. But we want to we want to continue to look at it and continue to put it in the hands of great teachers who will tell us a little bit about how it might be deployed in the future. And then I'll tell you, like, Adam, I, I just got off a call earlier today, like open AI is fascinating to me. Like, how yeah. can we leverage that? And you're seeing it in some small startups who are kind of basing their business on open AI. So we're thinking about that. Like, how do we think about the development of content in a world where you have things like open AI and, and chat GPT? Um, you know, how, how do we leverage that for good? And how do we leverage that uh, as a business in, in a changing world? So we're constantly trying to, to innovate and think about how do we how do we look at the landscape and leverage these technologies. And at the same time, when we go to market with something, we also think about, like, how do we make sure this is adoptable at scale? Right. Like, how do we make sure that we you know, we work with an L.A. Unified, we work with a Miami uh, school district or Miami Dade. How do we think about implementation at scale um, and making sure that our services are as easy to use as possible for, for classroom teachers? Because. We don't want to burden them any more than, uh, you know, that they're already doing in, in their incredible jobs. I think one of the challenges, as I see it, now at your size, you have to have the ability to deliver uniform, right? There's got to have that same experience wherever you are, you know, however you're using your tool. With the VR and the meta, just kind of we'll call it the whole – that whole industry, some of the conversation is it's like, oh, this is going to be – it's going to all go this way, right? Everything's going to be there. And I don't know if that's the case. You know, as I've, I've spoke about this on previous episodes, you know, we did a, we did a working group and we have an entire space 
and we got the team headsets and we put, you know, we started working in the metaverse and will it supplant in person? Not yet, but was it, did it have a, is it a role, right? Could it be an offering? Could it be something that would have supported the business that we're, that I'm in? Right. And I think that we're seeing a lot of like almost immediate whiplash on open AI around like, chat GPT, it's going to take over. There's going to be constant plagiarism at the same way that chat GPT has evolved. There will be answers for this, right? I, I, I'm of the age when turn it in was like a thing. You'd write your essay. It's, it's still a thing, by the way. <laughs> well, I mean, more like it was cutting edge, right? There was this, turn it in, right? <laughs> like you would take your, you would take your written essay yeah, and I, they would submit it in and there would be like these, here's where all this references came from. You were sweating bullets. And I was like, well, I've got the same reference on a Lincoln, just like everybody else did. Uh, but I guess to my broader point that there, I think a lot of these emerging technologies, they're not going to immediately upend and there'll be no teacher in the front room. Everyone will be wearing a goggle, but could it have a role, right? Could it, could it supplement could it enhance and will there be certain learners that thrive and certain learners are like, that's not for me. I think that's right. And, and I think that's why we, um, so, so our, our head of product is kind of famous for using the word crab pots. He's like, that's, that's why we throw crab pots in, um, and, and kind of look at and innovate in different areas. And we don't always have, uh, a go to market solution. in. we, we, it, we may not have an end to end strategy around it. Um, like AR VR, we have, we have developers in unity, uh, that sit in, in Manchester in the UK, uh, and, and they innovate. And, and we, like I said, we, we put out sandbox AR, um, and an app that we made available to teachers for free. And we'll continue to learn from that. And we'll talk to the teachers that are using it and we'll ask them how they're using it in classrooms. And if there's an application for it that, that we don't see, because sometimes we're surprised when we develop something, even in our core services, we'll develop a, a new feature. And we put it out in the universe and we think we know how people are going to use it. And we've done our focus groups and we've done our homework and we've watched classrooms observations. And then all of a sudden somebody 180s you and they're, they're using it in a, a completely novel way, which is great. Uh, and, and something we didn't think about. So I think when we think about innovation and especially in these, these kind of emerging areas, sometimes we're, we're just looking at technologies. We're just experimenting. We don't have an end to end solution in mind necessarily. Um, but I think that's important for us because I do think, you know, that's how you develop those solutions, right? We might find that open AI can generate content as it relates to X, Y, Z more effectively. Um, and, and if that's true, then we want to go down that path and we want to play around a little bit with that. There's a, I, I'd say we have an innovative spirit here. We're like, we love to, we, we love to innovate and we love to think about like, how can new and emerging technologies support what we like, you know, I, I'll keep saying it, like support what we know about good teaching and learning. If I had to give you another compliment around that, you've done an incredible job about acquiring very careful pieces to your business that continue to expand the stack. And I think you're, especially in the last two or three years, the acquisition was coin of the realm. I mean, everybody wanted to be acquiring or in some form of the M&A space. And yet you've really been intentional about buying offerings that you feel are moving your business, 
right? And so I guess part of what I'm interested in is how are you evaluating those opportunities, right? Like where, where does that fit in line with either be it, is it growth? Is it client service? Is it a crab pot, right? Like where, where, where's your mind go there? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things we look at. Like one is, is are there features or functions we think we can use to support kind of our current services? Um, like our AR VR development shop out of Manchester was an acquisition for us. Um, we, we, uh, purchased an interactive quiz function that that we could tie to any digital asset within our platform so that people can stay within that and build formative assessment around digital assets uh, that that we launched. And then, but I think w- when most people think acquisitions, they think new services or new products. Um, candidly, when we look at kind of through that lens, <laughs> this, sounds, this, this sounds pie in the sky, but the first thing we think about is is that a product we wish we'd have built ourselves? Um, and so I'll give you a great example of that. Like Mystery Science was one uh, that we acquired, I think it was in 2020, um, a couple of years ago. And the first time I got on a call with Mystery Science, you know, it's it's our first our first view on that isn't financial. It's not, you know, how to what do the synergies look like? It's it's are we envious of this product and do we wish we'd have built it ourselves? Uh, and so if it passes that, then we'll get to the other stuff. And that was one of the cool things about Mystery Science. The first time I looked at it, I was I was on a demo and I Googled Mystery Science and I started reading what teachers were saying about it. And I, I fell in love. Like it was literally on the first meeting. I'm like, this is an asset that I just absolutely love. Like teachers love it. They're saying great things about it. People love Mystery Doug. People love the content. Um, it, you know, incidentally, it's a great business. Uh, but that wasn't the first thing that I noticed. I, I noticed at first like the, the teacher affinity for this service. And then, and then we look at things like the people and the culture within the company. Is it a good fit? We look at like, what's the purpose? Like, what's their mission? Uh, and then ultimately, like, are they making a difference? Like, is it something that we'd be proud to put in front of uh, the partners that we work with across the world and, and stand behind? And so if all those things become true, then we'll try and work out the economics and, and see if it makes sense for us as a business. When you roll those businesses in, is there ever a fear of like, the very unique culture that they've built, whatever, whatever it embodied for them to create a mystery science thriving under something that is probably more organized or more structured than they're accustomed to. How, how do you solve for that? Yeah. I, so always a concern, right? So we have uh, like, we literally have a VP of people and culture that we included in, in our MA process early on. Um, because we're so focused on the culture integration, uh, because we know that that can be one of the biggest challenges. And so, uh, but, but I think that the thing that we do that I'm pretty proud of, I was over in the UK, we, we also acquired a company called Doodle Math, um, uh, last year and spent some time in Bath with, with that team. And I came out of that and someone at dinner said to me, like, I, I'm, I'm so pleased with the numbers of questions that you asked us about how we're doing things. And I think our philosophy is when we acquire a company, it's not about just bringing them into discovery education and kind of meshing them into our board. <laughs> it's, it's like, what can we learn from them? Like, yes, we love the products and services, but what are they doing either from a product development perspective or from an operational perspective or from a culture perspective that we can take and learn from? And there's always things that we learn from our acquisitions that we end up deploying like company-wide. Um, and, and I really love that about like, we, we don't go in thinking like, hey, we're right and they're going to match us and marry us. We go in thinking like, 
We specifically want to figure out what is it they bring to the table that they do better than us. And how do we learn from that? And I, and I think just that acknowledgement sometimes is, is super helpful and puts people at ease. Uh, and, and a little bit turns the, you know, turns the table and, and puts a little pressure back on us to, to make sure that we're constantly getting better. We use a term strategies called laboratory culture, right? Which is when a scientist is in the lab, if they try a hundred things and they all fail, that's part of the process, right? That's a brilliant scientist. It's somehow in the work world, right? If you made a hundred mistakes, you're like a failure. And yeah. And I don't know where that started. That could probably be a whole episode, but it sounds like you've in, you've embraced some of this, which is to say you guys are out there, you're looking for those lessons. You're you're trying to find what makes these really interesting companies successful and then embed it into your own business. Yeah, we, we have uh, we, we have something called our North Star. Um, and and there are four components to our North Star. So I'll just talk about one that's kind of related to this. Uh, so the last component is invest in our future. Uh, and so first and foremost, our investing in our future means investing in our people. Uh, and so we, we talk about kind of talent management as a core component of that. But underneath that are like emerging initiatives and things that we're investing in as a business that aren't going to have a financial return in the near future, but that we're thinking about like, what are those things that we're going to invest in in 2023 that we think will have a disproportionate return in 24, 25, 26. And I, I'm really candid about that. Like there are like four or five initiatives under there that they're not all going to work. I mean, to your point, it is okay to swing and miss. And, and if it's not okay to swing and miss, like we're just never going to innovate. And so one of the things we talk about is like, listen, all four or five of these are not going to knock it out of the park. Not the, not, it's not even the point, right? Like we think one or two might, and heck, I hope four or five do, <laughs> uh, but you know, it's okay to swing and miss. And I think that's got to be part of our, our culture. Um, and so like, I'll, I'll often stand up and talk about the things I've swung and missed on, right? Like, Hey, I developed this one time, like what a disaster that was. <laughs> But you know what? Like, I'm still standing. <laughs> when we first met, I took that away from our kind of our time together, right? Like your hubris is like right on your sleeve. Like you're, you're, you're very comfortable with the fact that like you're a human, not just a CEO. And I think a lot of CEOs, we end up in the situation of we must know everything, right? We, we, we sit around with all the answers. And I think the reality is, is that we're comfortable with the unknown and some of that unknown means like you have to be willing to just to your word, take a swing and miss like, and it happens. It's just, and, and I'll use another phrase we, we talked about, like you're not betting the farm, right? And that lets you protect your people, which you've mentioned several times on today's episode, but it, it still allows you to be in a spot to try new things. And some of those new things are what will make the company survive in the future. You just don't know it yet. A hundred, yeah. I mean, at some point you're going to hit, you're going to swing and hit tech book, right? And it's going to be a, a line of of business that you, you never expected to take off the way it did, or or you're, you're going to score a partnership with the minister of education in Egypt and and have a almost a decade long relationship and do a lot of good and you know in, in a country in the Middle East. So I think there's like some some of those swings and, and misses are going to be swings and hits, and you're going to knock it out of the park. And I think that's what's exciting about about the work in general. As we, I, I will say, Oh, sorry, God. No, you good. I, I was going to say, I, I will say like, it's funny you brought up, um, it, you know, I think sometimes people feel like they have to be the smartest person in the room. 
I, I remember a conversation I had with an employee once who said uh, something to the effect of, um, you know, I, I, uh, but Scott, like, I hate, I hate my manager. Uh, and I'm like, well, why do you hate your manager? And they're like, well, I know more than they do about X, Y, Z. And I said, I said, you know, so-and-so, like, you should. Like, in, in my team, right, I have a head of communications and a head of sales and a head of marketing and a finance. Like, I shouldn't know as much about their job as any one of them, right? Like, they should all be smarter than I am. And they should all know more about their functional area than I do. And I feel like that is how you build great companies, right? Like to me, in, in this sector, the best teams are probably going to win. Um, and so my job, like as I boil it down, if people said to me, like, what's the most important thing you can do? It's to build the best team around me I can possibly build. Like, it doesn't, I don't have to be great. As long as everybody around me is great, then I think we're going to win. This is a bit of a challenge question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I mean, you see a lot of companies. I know you do, and I know DE's very active in that market, and you see a lot of people. I mean, you have a big business. What's the one thing that you're shopping for when you're trying to add to your team? Like, what's what's that one characteristic, either be it within a company or a leader? And that may be oversimplifying it. Yeah, one. One's a tough one. Um, you can I mean, share if, if there's more than one. Yeah, the first thing is cultural fit. I mean, I, I think you have to fit within our organization. I think there's... Um, we have really good people that I think uh, are humble and and want to work for the greater good, right? Like first and foremost, I think if you walked around Discovery Education, it's funny. And I talk to people, and I know everybody says this. And then I we, we hire people from different companies, and I'll say, "What's different about it here?" And, and they'll say, "It's it, it is the alignment to mission that that kind of strikes people." Um, you know, I, I came from education. It, a lot of people at Discovery Education are former teachers, former principals. Like we care deeply about the work. And incidentally, I think, and you'll hear me say it a lot, like if we deliver on our promises and do good in classrooms and do good by teachers, ultimately this business is going to be great. Uh, and I think that's what we've been focused on over, over the last couple of decades. And so I think you'll see that general alignment. So that's really important that people come in with an aligned vision of like, hey, this is a business that first and foremost has to deliver on its promises to the teachers and students we serve. And if we do all those other things around business dynamics will come along. Um, but then I also think it is important, like we acknowledge the strengths of other people across the organization, learn from them, ask the questions. That doesn't mean you have to build consensus. It doesn't mean we can't make decisions quickly. Uh, but it does mean like be open and, and listen thoughtfully to the really talented folks that are within the organization. Uh, I think, you know, that, that's, that to me is probably the most important thing. I love that. A, like a core mission of yours is client value, right? This, your end user is the American education system and you've brought people in that clearly care. You wouldn't be a teacher. You just hate kids, right? If you didn't believe <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. Right. I, I, uh, I, I, you know, sometimes I, I think the profession is taking it on the chin for a hundred reasons, like the people I worked shoulder to shoulder with, like, yeah, were they tired sometimes? Certainly. But so was people I meet in corporate America, right? Like I think what makes a teacher so unique and to your point about the fact that you're so focused on them. And my understanding is millions of teachers are in your network is you know, they want to show up, do their job. Well, they want to inspire their kids. They 
they they love American education. I mean, that's that's what makes somebody want to do that profession. Certainly for more than a year or two, especially the folks that have been there 10, 20, 30 years. Like you don't just grit that job out. Right? It can't just be for summers. And I love that your product and the mission is always geared towards like what's best for teachers. And I hear a lot about that when I work with your team. What's best for kids? What's best for learning? And that's certainly has to be a part of your secret sauce for why you've had such a, a successful run. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I have a strong opinion, obviously, because it's what I've been doing my whole life. Uh, what's more important, right? Like I, there's just nothing more important. Like we can talk about climate change. We can talk about like all these things go away with great education around the world, right? I, it, it is the cornerstone of what builds great societies. Um, and it's hard work. I mean, it, it does break my heart what's happened to kind of the, the education profession over the last couple of years, um, because I do think it's become more in the spotlight and I do think it's become more politicized and controversial. Um, but I mean, these are, you know, I, I mentioned early on, my mom was um, my math teacher at school. Like, I know how hard she worked, right? Like, it is fairly thankless. Um, I will say I've also seen the I've seen the thank the thanks side when a note comes from a student 20 years later who, who says thank you. And uh, it's an amazing experience. I, my wife is a public school teacher. I was in public education. And, you know, when, when those things are, you can't get the smile off people's faces when that happens, rightfully so. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a tough job. Uh, and so anything we can do to make that a little easier uh, is certainly at the heart of what we do. So rolling back for a minute, you joined Discovery Education, right? You're building this teacher network. One thing leads to another, right? Obviously a lot of success and you become the CEO. At some point, Discovery was connected to Discovery TV, right? The actual Shark Week, everything. Everyone knows that channel. And you navigated a way to both separate but keep the relationship together. Can, Can you tell us that story? Yeah, no, it's, 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 so when I started here at Discovery, uh, Discovery was privately owned. It wasn't even a public company. I mean, now, now Discovery is Discovery Warner Brothers and it's got studios all over the world. It's amazing. Um, but when I started here, it was still private. I, in fact, I was here when Discovery went public. Um, but about five years ago, we had gotten to the point as a company where it just felt like we needed to stand on our own. Um, so when we were part of Discovery, which was awesome, right? Like I, I, I love the Discovery brand. I mean, you can't be prouder to work for a company than, you know, you're wearing that globe and you get on a plane and people are talking about shark week and, and, and it didn't matter incidentally where I was in the world. Like I could go to Europe and people would still be talking to me about shows that they watched on discovery, which is just amazing. And so uh, I think that the, the, the two things, you know, and I'll talk about the carve out, but two things I learned at discovery that, I, that I'll, are huge takeaways. One was just the value of content, right? Like, how world-class content was just mesmerizing. Like I joined, and I don't know if you all remember this, Adam, but I joined when something called Planet Earth came out. Uh, there were kind of two mega series. I do Planet remember Earth this. And there was Life. And I, I remember going to New York and watching the, the premiere of Planet Earth. And what was super cool, you talk about innovation, what was super cool, there's an interview with some of the, some of the folks. And the, the person who founded Discovery, his name is John Hendricks, they, they said to him, they, you know, five years ago, no one had HD TVs because this was this was the first series that ever came out in high definition. It was beautiful and brilliant. And and they're like, 
why did you guys shoot this in HD? And they were asking like some of the producers. It wasn't John on the stage at the time. It was one of the producers. And, uh, and the producer said, John Hendricks made us do it. And what he said to us was, yes, no one has high definition TVs in their house today. But five years from now, when this is done, everybody will have one. And it was like just this wow. brilliant foresight around, around, you know, around that commitment to say like, this will be, the like, technology will be there when we're done filming this. And, and it took five years to film. So content was, was king, you know, at Discovery in those days. And then the second thing is just like the value of a brand and how important that brand and those relationships are. And so, you know, that's something I think we carry with us still today, but it got to the point where it was pretty clear, like we needed to get to a position where we could make decisions every day on what was good for an educational technology company. And at the time, a pretty small educational technology company in order for us to scale. And so uh, with, you know, certainly with the permission and, and um, advocacy of Discovery Communications, we spun out. Uh, we ended up working with a, a private equity company called Francisco Partners to help us carve out because it was super interesting. When we carved out, we didn't have our own finance team because we were matrix in discovery. We didn't have our own legal team. We didn't have our own HR team. So we had to build half the company. We had, we had our products uh, and we had our sales and marketing organizations, uh, but we had to build half the company back in. Uh, and so did that good work for, it took us about a year. Uh, and then, you know, really thought about like, how do we invest in, in our platform and our services and the teachers that we serve, uh, which, which took us to, uh, a great four-year run under Francisco Partners. And that four-year run crescendoed to where you are now. New great partner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we, we, we think a lot about like our, our impact and how we can continue to grow uh, and have impact across the world. Uh, and so when we carved out great partner for about four years, we were really focused on a couple key pieces of our business. Uh, we felt like we were at a point where we had, we had frankly kind of accomplished that. And, and you asked about M&A and kind of the next phase of growth for us was, how do we take this platform we built? How do we take this technological infrastructure? And how do we start to put things on top of it that we think add additional value to, to, the, to the schools and districts that we serve? Um, and so to do that, we wanted to go find another partner that had a little bit more capital uh, and that was Clear Lake Capital. Uh, and so in April of this year, uh, probably about, geez, I don't know, I, I guess April of last year, I, I'm sorry, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm switching years here. Uh, so almost a year ago, uh, we, we partnered with Clear Lake Capital and they've been just a great partner with ours. And Francisco has stayed with us. And so they're a minority owner in the business as well, which is, uh, which is great because they were a great partner. I think you make this process sound incredibly easy. I'm just being <laughs> candid, right? Having done it myself. There were some late nights. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, take us to the, the moment when, I mean, you had to obviously approach the board of a company that you were a piece of, right? You were one component to a multitude of an enterprise. And, you know, how long you had been leading the business at that point? When we were with Discovery? Yeah. Uh, I was president of the K-12 division at the time. Um, geez, I don't know how long I was in that role at the time. Certainly had never run a business of this size, totally on its oh, own, sure. on its own yeah. legs. You know what I mean? That just takes a lot of fortitude. And we talk a lot about that. You know, the 
there's a lot of doubt in this process. And to yeah, drive I, that forward. I, I think that the, the, the North Star for me personally was always like, how do we think about the impact we have it as a business and how can we accelerate that? Um, and I think you're right. And, and listen, there's, there's risk inherent in that, that position. Um, I think there's uncertainty <laughs> in that, but at the same time, like, I, I think, you know, it's, it, my, my daughter has taken some class today and, and she texted me on, uh, you know, what do you want your legacy to be? And, and I, I quickly text back. I'm like, eh, I don't really believe in legacies, but I would say like what I want people to say after I'm gone to the extent that people remember me, uh, is that like the decisions he made were what was like what he believed were right for the company and the growth of the company and the impact that the, the company could have. Um, and I think as long as you keep that in mind, like, you know, I can always sleep at night if I always believe that to be true. Uh, and I think that to me is, is one of the most important things when you're thinking about like, how do I, where, where does this business go next? Um, you know, it's never personal. It's not about you. It's to me, it's always about like, how do we make sure that we stay on a path of having the greatest impact that we possibly can? You know, we have, we have over a hundred, um, employees in, in Bath in, in London in an office and, I think I mentioned that, you know, we, we provide about a third of the curriculum in, in the country of Egypt. Like we have some really cool worldwide impact that that we provide. And we just want to make sure that we can continue to do that great work uh, and continue to expand that great work. So kind, kind of always thinking about, like, how do we put ourselves in the best position and how do we how do we find the right partners at the right time to help us get in that position? Year one goes by. Right. You're stabilized. Yeah. And now you're looking that. forward. <laughs> yeah. I, and I, you know, we went through that. I mean, building end to end. I mean, I, I undervalued how you're picking healthcare plans. You're setting up 401ks, you're setting up finance, F and a AR AP. Like there's just a lot yeah, that you take for granted. I certainly as an employee, it's just like, Oh, well, you know, the money fairy delivers the money to us, you know, that you don't realize how involved that policies. Is. I mean, it, yeah. Yeah. It's, Handbooks. it's a lot. Guidelines. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. Absolutely. And so at what point did the momentum begin to carry you guys? Like when did you realize like this was working? Uh, it took about a year. I'd say it took about a year. Um, you know, we brought in our, our CFO, uh, Brian Shaw, who did a lot of the infrastructure and corporate, corporate infrastructure work. Um, like that took a lot of work. But I'd say, you know, we, we then pretty quickly pivoted to like really focusing on our core platform and saying like, what is the most important thing in our portfolio? Let's focus on our core platform. Let's make that the best in the world. Let's put the technological infrastructure around that to take it around the world. Um, and, and let's focus. And, and a lot of the, our work over the next two years, candidly, was really focused on how do we build as much value for educators into that platform as possible. Um, certainly part of that was like COVID hit, right? Like, so we, we finally got stood up, <laughs> kind of yeah. got, got our legs underneath us. Um, I'd say, you know, we had real momentum and then all of a sudden, you know, March of 2020 hits and, and we're sending everybody home. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I told the story today and I know this is no different for, for lots of folks, but we were, we were planning a full company-wide uh, test. You know, everybody stay home next Friday. We're going to test all our infrastructure. We're going to test all our remote communications. Uh, and then all of a sudden, like Wednesday came around, we're like, just kidding. Everybody go home. <laughs> so, wow. 
Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, and I know a lot of companies kind of went through the same thing. Um, so then we were navigating kind of that, that growth through remote means, um, much like everybody in the world, right? So we are no different. Uh, and, and so all of a sudden communications and I will say the one thing, Adam, that's interesting about that timing is because we carved out and stood up that infrastructure, our entire infrastructure was cloud-based, right? We weren't running SAP anymore on-prem. Like, it was almost fortuitous timing that we came off the carve-out. Like, you know, our finance systems were cloud-based. Our travel systems were cloud. Like Everything we were doing was cloud-based. So that was a, probably a blessing in disguise you know, as it prepared us for uh, the next two years. It's odd to say like COVID was good, right? Like that's like a, it's almost insensitive for a lot of people that have had a lot of, a lot of just hard oh, moments sure. through COVID, but it does feel like if COVID had a benefit, there are emerging technologies that I'm sure at some point in your early days of even bringing discovery to schools, people would be like, well, do we need this? Right? Like, in that process, in a very short period of time, so much innovation hit the the classroom and some, maybe too much, right? Some, I think we've realized when you're looking at the, the learning scores that like, okay, maybe this whole thing can't go online. Uh, but I feel like for for your specific product, a lot of states were relying on you. You guys served as a repository, if my memory serves me, for free. You were offering a lot of your services just to be a partner. Yeah. I mean, our our perspective on this early on was, and again, this kind of goes back to having a bunch of educators in the company, uh, was how do we help, right? Like, I, I think our perspective was, let's provide the services. We did, you know, even beyond that, we did thousands of, of hours of professional development on webinars, on how to remote teach. I mean... That I think that was one of the biggest shocks. It wasn't just the materials, but it was like, oh my God, what do I, how do I do this? Right. I have 25 kids or 30 kids on a Zoom now. What does that look like? And, and we have people that are very, very good at that. Uh, and so we did uh, webinars, we did conferences, like all remote. Um, so it was pretty cool to, I mean, you know, people are tired. People worked. I, and again, like I know teachers did this too, uh, but it was cool to see like internally. People worked around the clock trying to support teachers because that's just who they are. Uh, and, and I've always said like at Discovery Education, I'm always most proud of our, our company and our people in times of crisis um, because it's when people really band together. It's, it's like it's almost, you know, it's the, the virtual locking of arms and being like, no, we're not going to let this beat us. Um, and we're going to support the, the schools and the districts that we serve. Uh, and it's, it's always cool to watch. I've seen it a couple of times since I've been here and, and it's just it's, it's really is inspiring. I mean, it, it kind of, it's, it's also humbling when you look at like just 600 people kind of working in concert to support a global pandemic uh, and, and the difference in teaching. So yeah, it's, uh, it was, it was an interesting time. And, and to your, to your point, I think, you know, certainly I agree. It, it's not anything that you'd hope. What it did for us was probably different than what it did for most people um, you know, I, I think part of that is like we're a 20 year old company that that's been growing kind of along the way. So we, we, we weren't a newcomer that had this spike and then, you know, is kind of now seeing a reeling back. I think we've seen pretty consistent growth, but I think what it did for us and what it, more importantly, what it kind of did for the industry 
you know, I, I talked about like that Florida textbook adoption a while back. So at the time, I was actually the person that presented that to the to the, the State Board of Education in Florida. So wow. my lights just went off. Um, and, and I remember talking about like the benefits of digital textbooks. And I, I remember the time there was a there's an oil spill off the coast of Florida. And I can't remember which one it was. Um, and I use that as an example. I'm like, you know, tomorrow in our textbook, like you're going to have video on that. And you're going to have assets that that are aligned to standards that talk about that. Um, your textbooks, that's going to be another eight years before you see that. <laughs> um, so I think there, even then there were great benefits to digital. But at the same time, like the common things that people would say are things like, you know, my, my bandwidth isn't fast enough. Uh, I don't have enough technology to access this. Like my kids don't have laptops. My teachers don't have enough technology. And my teachers aren't ready. Like those were the common three things that we hear pretty consistently, all fair, right? A decade ago or so. Um, and I think as you look at like what COVID did, was it really mitigated some of those things? Uh, and so, you know, almost every district in this country has high speed broadband. One to one became nearly ubiquitous as a result of COVID. And every teacher in this country is using technology and digital digital tools to reach students. And so, I think that's really where the opportunity is. The opportunity now is a lot of those barriers are gone. So now how can we as an industry start to think about what are the greatest technologies, tools, what are the most impactful, what are the things that make a difference and how do we deliver those to teachers at scale? I mean, clearly you've made incredible growth in that space, right? I mean, you're teaching millions of kids every day because those teachers believe, right? Your, your end user believes in what you do. Scott, when you think about 19 years at a same, that's like unheard of, certainly in the, in the new world, right? You, it's this idea of like ladder, 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 but you've went the other way, right? You've just went deeper and deeper within a business that now you lead. And for a lot of entrepreneurs, they begin to embody their business, right? That it's almost part of their identity. I feel it at times, right? And it sometimes makes it hard to turn off, unplug. What's the what's the you that people don't see? Uh, you know, I'll be painting my face on Sunday at the Eagles game. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I won't paint my face, but I will be there. Uh, you know, listen, I, I think that to me is uh, first of all, I, I don't I don't do a, probably a great job at separating the two because it is so like it, it is part of my fabric, right? I love this company. I've been here a long time. I love the people in it. Like I, you know, you inherently have friends as, as a result of that. Um, you know, people talk a lot about kind of the disconnect and I, I understand that, but, but I don't, I'm not great at it. Um, and, and that's okay by me. Like I'm okay not being great at it because, you know, I, I, this is a place that is, is part of the fabric of who I am. I've been here long enough. Um, you know, the part that when I, when I do step away, it's family, right? It's, it's, I have, uh, three kids that are in college and, you know, hanging out with my girls and, and, uh, you know, either going to a football game or going to a long weekend vacation with them. Uh, I'm extremely, I have a, a you know, two, two 19 year olds and a, and a 20 year old. And, uh, I'm extremely fortunate that they still like to spend time with me. And so I'm going to, I'm going to soak it up because <laughs> I know it's, I know at some point it'll come to an end. Uh, so I'm going to soak it up while I can. Uh, and then, like I said, uh, still a pretty big football fan. My wife and I are going to head to the Eagles NFC Championship uh, this weekend. So hopefully that'll turn out in, in the po most positive way possible. <laughs> well, I wish you nothing but the best. I have no dog in that fight. The, <laughs> you know, 
Scott, along those lines, right? My understanding is you enjoy running. And I bring this up not because it's super valuable, but in the way that like, is that your way of kind of like clearing your mind? Is that, the, is that how you find that, that sort of solace from, from the constant, which can be, you know, the phones can be constant emails, constant, right? The, the urgency culture, which from my own vantage point, my mind dictates my decisions for my business. And so being careful to not fall victim to the urgency culture is really important. And so I'll say from my own world, right, it's there is a rhythm that I followed to get my space. And I, I like to just prod entrepreneurs a little bit on this because I certainly believe your family and no doubt going to Eagles games. Great. But like, how do you quiet the mind? How do you find that time for you to, to make these contemplated decisions, right? Like you, you bought a business with people that relied on you, with your own family relying on you, and then build that business to where it is today to transact again. And I think that that process is undersold to how hard that is, right? And so I'm always interested for entrepreneurs, like what what are you doing to just find that 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 time, that space, and, and how do you do it? Yeah, no, I, I think... I think you nailed it for me. Uh, it, it's so it's a little bit of quieting the mind. It's a little bit of solving problems. Uh, I find if I have something I'm grappling with and I can't get there, like I'll go for a five mile run and just roll it around on my head uh, for an hour. And, 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 and it's, it's fascinating how many times I can get it on a run. Um, and so I think those are, and, and they're usually, like you said, those are the big meaty ones, right? Like those are the personnel issues. Those are the things that impact people. Um, you know, I, I take that so seriously given kind of the culture of our business. And so, uh, yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Like I, I, I would say, um, I, I started, I started doing, I started trying to do triathlons last year. Uh, swimming also does that cause it's so quiet. Like it's just like, it's a very quiet space, but long runs are still, still my favorite. I'm not good at it. Incidentally, some people say, say to me, I'm a runner. I'm like, I'm not a runner. I happen to run <laughs> pretty slowly actually. Um, and then, uh, when I'm on the bike though, I do pay attention. I do find if I let my mind wander there, I'm just going to get in trouble. So I try, I try to pay attention to my surroundings. Uh, but I, I'd say you nailed it. That, that is, that is kind of my, the time where I can kind of shut it down, turn the phone off and, and kind of really roll around uh, the tough ones. It's a common thread for almost every CEO we've had on this call that there's a, they have their time, right? They have carved out a time, which is counter to what I think people believe where it's constant, right? Your two phones, your, your, you know, you got assistance jockeying your calendar. Those are times when I'm the least effective, Right the times I'm the most effective are quiet and contemplative. And I think that uh, for a lot of leaders, it's important to hear that that's not only needed, it's what your peers are doing to grow themselves and their enterprises. Yeah. It's, it's also interesting. So if I'm not rolling a problem around in my head, what often happens is uh, the next stop is I'm calling somebody like on our product team, bugging them about something. I think we should be building. <laughs> People don't love that one. <laughs> yeah, I uh, you can't see it in my office, but I, I take a big the big white paper now the like you kind of giant stickums, 
and I have yeah. them all over the office. And I, I'll write the ideas, but I won't send them to the team until I've seasoned on them, right? So I'll have an idea, write it, don't forget it, leave, think, leave, think, leave it alone, come back to it. If I still like it, then then we'll start making it team-wide. Uh, yeah, you're better than me. I'm usually <laughs> <just> the <laughs> Scott, this has been an awesome episode. Thank you so much for being on the show. We have all of our oh. guests answer. We call the Fast Four, all right? So just... Off the top of your head, as an entrepreneur, what trends that are emerging that interest you? What What do you like? If you were investing beyond, obviously, DE's own capital, like what, what, what are you the most interested in? Yeah, I mean, I, I talk about it a little. Open AI, I think, is fascinating. How, how we're going to leverage that, um, and 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 I'm not I'm not focused on the side that most people are talking about. Like, I'm not focused on writing essays and kind of plagiarism software and those types of things. I'm most interested in uh, it from a content development perspective and how we can leverage it um, in, from that direction. One place in the world everyone needs to visit. So I once uh, was on the Great Wall of China all by myself, and that's a much longer story. Uh, that was one of the coolest experiences I've ever had. Greatest area of growth for you in the coming year? For me personally? Yeah. Greatest area growth. Um, oh, geez, that's a good one. He got me. And there's a lot of them, so it shouldn't be that hard. <laughs> I'd say just continuing to listen. Um, I think that's, you know, I, I just want to make sure that I continue to listen. Uh, I have gotten better at being less emotional when being direct. So I think that's something I'm kind of always striving for. How can you just make sure you can always have direct conversations, but take the emotion out of it on both sides. Uh, so that's something I'm always working towards too. And if you're a, if you're into podcasts, so I give kind of the two show, the favorite podcast or favorite book that people need to either be listening to or reading. Uh, you know, I'm a little bit pop culture. So I, I do like smartless. Uh, okay. I don't know if you're from here. Are you familiar with that one? I'm not, but I've heard of yeah. it. Yeah. So like Jason Bateman and uh, a, a couple of his buddies. Uh, so I like that one. Um, pretty interesting people. And you kind of learn a lot about people that things that you didn't know about. Uh, Bono is on right now, actually, as, as the person being interviewed. Um, favorite book, I would say, like, I still go back to, if you've never read Good to Great, go back and read Good to Great. I, I, there's so many things that I still today quote from that book, as old as it is, uh, it's one of those things I live by. I mean, the latest book, I, the, the last book I read was what, you know, measure what matters by doer. Sure, and, do um, yeah. so, you know, we're, we're implementing OKRs, uh, across our company. So that's top of mind. Uh, but I'll still talk about the hedgehog concept. I'll still talk about, you know, good being the enemy of great. Like there's still a couple things in there that I still carry with me today. And it's gotta been 20 years now. Talk about lasting power. That's incredible. Yeah, ex Exactly. You don't read a lot of books that you reference 20 years later. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly right. Scott, it was wonderful having you on the show. Thank you for sharing an incredible story. And we wish you the best of luck. Yeah. Appreciate it, Adam. Well, you guys are a great partner of ours. So I appreciate the time and great to connect. Thank you for joining today's episode of Capital Class. If you're interested in joining our next discussion, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, 
or any of your favorite podcast platforms. Capital Class is a venture with the Strategist Podcast Network. To view the entire lineup of shows, visit strategistgroup.com. I'm Adam Geary. Class is closed. <laughs>